Hello and welcome to episode 395 of the Fabulous Pelton cast. There I'm your co host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. And this is a semi-emergency pod. The Seahawks victorious over the Philadelphia Eagles on Monday Night Football. A thrilling come-from-behind win led by Drew Locke. And you were there for the whole thing. You're looking something up, so I'm going to have to fill a little bit No, more. I'm not looking anything up. Oh, okay. This, this was one of those games, and I think there have been a lot of them this year, especially during the stretch, the gauntlet that the Seahawks were facing, where I went into it, I, I don't feel like I was thinking about this game. This wasn't UW versus Oregon. It was just like, here's another game. We'll see what happens. I'm going to go into it. I'm honestly pretty chill about the situation. If the Seahawks lose out, if they lose this one, playoff hopes are pretty close to dead. And, you know, I kind of was thinking to myself, honestly, maybe they should be if they lose this game. Going into it, it was just like, I, I couldn't work up the excitement for it. I was pretty late. Right, you were narrating the beginning of the game to me. There was That's a touchdown correct. that I missed, or whatever. And not just a sh- uh, not just a touchdown, an extremely long touchdown drive. And which, thankfully, there was an extremely long because I didn't miss that, miss that much of the game. No, and you then, still missed an equal amount of the game. You just didn't miss that many drives. <laughs> yeah, and then you, you get in there. You, you saw more drives during the final one thirty-seven of the first half. That was brutal. Than the first 10 minutes of the game. And then you get in there and you recognize that the Seahawks don't have a fan base anymore. It's just Eagles fans, right? Very similar to the 49ers game. And Is it actually true that the Seahawks had to take the timeout that set up the Nick Sirianni challenge because of the fact that they no couldn't way. hear because it was so loud? No way. Okay. Absolutely not. All right. But we'll get back to that. Anyway, so you're, you're watching the game, and honestly, I'm just sitting there. It's like the Eagles fans are fine. They're not as annoying as the Niners fans. Like, I don't like them. I don't like that there are so many of them, but I get it. And I was like, this Look, is... Look, I enjoyed It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, or enjoy. This is kind of their time. Trey Turner's still a great player, right? Like, they have an Italian coach. And so you're just going through the game. It's like, <laughs> you're your child is a diehard fan of them. You're, you're going through the game, and you're like... I, it, whatever happens is fine. Like I'm, I'm having a hard time getting into it. But then slowly, one by one, series by series, you get a little bit frustrated. You're like, oh, do I just hate Pete Carroll? Do I even like this team at all? It's frustrating to watch this defense without Devin Witherspoon. And as more time is passing, I'm like getting a little bit more and more into the game. And then we get to the last drive. And all of a sudden, Drew Locke hits DK Metcalf for a bomb. Drew Locke hits Jackson Smith and Jigba for a touchdown. And back on the other side, there's time left on the clock. Too much time left on the clock. Three timeouts. And you see Jalen Hurts. was my first thought. Not even excitement about the Jackson Smith and Jigba touchdown. Just there's too much time left. It's like the Oregon game. And the Super Bowl participating Philadelphia Eagles offense. You know know the record end of the season. And they're coming down the other way. And Jalen Hurts throws the ball up on a deep pass. You're terrified, right? You're just like, look, let's just hold him to a field goal. And in the end, Julian Love comes down with that ball. And it. it I take so little joy in saying this, but Jalen Hurts, retire, bitch! Oh, no. 
Let's fucking go! Oh, what a W. What a W that was to win this game in front of all of the city of Philadelphia somehow. They were so sad walking out of there. And I'm like, dog, you're really excited right now. A, you're playing against Drew Locke, dude. B, I know your point differential. <laughs> like, this was not an impressive game. Look, the Seahawks played fine. This was a bad game for the Eagles more than it was a good game for the Seahawks. And we called it from the very beginning. Wrong team favored. To quote the, the uh, wait, what was it again? The the Dixie Dynamo. The Dixie Dynamo, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, although it wasn't really, the game didn't play out exactly as we were expecting, especially when we recorded this, we still weren't aware of the shakeoff of, of the Eagles defensive staff that left Matt Patricia as the de facto just, defensive my coordinator. My favorite thing that happened all week is the Eagles, literally there is no situation where the solution is Matt Patricia. That I saw that on Sunday morning, Sean Desai got play calling duties taken away from him. And all of a sudden it's Matt Patricia on play calling duties. And I was like, dog, you are 10 and three right now at the moment. How can you be this desperate? Times are tough. We are talking Gonzaga level bad for the Philadelphia Eagles right now. They are 10 and four and you should just start next season right now. Look, there must be more Georgia defenders in the draft. Because they got to find some help. That team is sad right now. They need a quarterback. They need a defense. Still waiting, by the way. I'm looking at my clock running through. Still waiting on Jalen Carter to make a play. Because I watched that entire game. And he did not make a one. Uh, Jalen Carter had a really important play in the game, didn't he? Which one? The the third down. They're right before the... Or the, that led to the Nick Sirianni review. That was Jalen Carter who had the pressure on that play. That great, came great. The sack. Devin Witherspoon had as many plays on DNP as Jalen Carter had in this game. Okay, I'm man. sorry. Just going to continue to ignore ignore <laughs> all facts and figures. Also, did you notice Leonard Williams in today's game? Because I noticed him. Oh I yeah, he did lot. have one sack. Literally, Jalen Carter. Look, a round of applause. Let's give him the defensive rookie of the year for play. You know, like, you have to celebrate it's play that he made. It's an interior defensive lineman. If one sack in a game is an extraordinary That is not defensive player of the year. Well, it's not defensive player of the year. A defensive rookie, rookie of the year. Of you the felt, that in this game, you felt Devin Witherspoon not being out there. Look, the I mean, Seahawks defense. because I, I don't know whether the Seahawks defense played a good game or not. They limited the Eagles to 17 points. The yards per play was very low, 4.7. And then you look at EPA, the Eagles actually averaged more, EP, with two interceptions, averaged more EPA per play than they have over the course of the season on offense. Their offense is somehow worse than this in other situations? I was I, telling Chris I mean, a lot game, of it is their third down prowess. They were... If you count the one fourth down conversion they had, they they're were good 10 on and third and 16 when they got to third down. I was like, this is just a really weird offense. Like, it is so different than almost any offense that you see, and they're kind of bad at a lot of stuff. And then you see it, like, the amount of plays that get blown up. Like, the Seahawks defense did a pretty good job of blowing up a lot of the short garbage that they did. But yes. I'm like, I said that to Chris, and literally the very next play was a screen pass to a tight end with a wide receiver trying to block. And I was just like, what are you doing? Uh, they did a really nice job on A.J. Brown, who had five catches and 10 targets for 56 yards. So 5.6 yards per target. Notably, 
Reek Woolen benched for nearly the entirety of this game, was out there for a couple of defensive I thought series. Mike Jack was great, for what it's worth. I It'll be interesting. I haven't seen any Pete Carroll postgame quotes. I suppose I should go looking for them on this decision. In a game like that where you're, a lot of it is being played at the line of scrimmage, Mike Jackson's ability much, to much tackle more is more important. Much more physical defender. And there were even some plays, I think it was eight, or Devontae Smith, who had a catch for like nine yards right in front of Mike Jack, but he hit him hard out of bounds. And it was one of those plays where it's like, this defense was hitting a little bit hard. The speed wasn't necessarily there. The speed at the linebacker position isn't there. But the secondary hit a lot more than they have, even with Devin Witherspoon being out. I would be interested to see this defense when you get when you get Spoon and Mike Jack and Trey Brown on the field together. It could be the three best corners on the team. I'm not ready to go there yet. I I still think look when you look at the coverage numbers for Woolen, they're they're outstanding over the course of the season. But th- this was a Pete Carroll game through and through. And look, my feelings about Pete Carroll ranged drastically throughout this game. You have the punt to start it, right? You have the multiple field goals in the red zone. You have the calling the timeout two separate times, calling timeouts before fourth downs. Like Pete Carroll did all of the annoying things that Pete Carroll does in a football game. But also, Pete Carroll, Pete Carroll a W today. Pete Carroll was playing the type of game, and, and there was, it was so close to things going horribly wrong. Literally one possession, and the Seahawks lose this game. But Pete Carroll managed to Pete Carroll himself a win here. The turnover margin was different. They ran the ball pretty well. Not exceptional, but they ran the ball pretty well. And it was two turnovers for the Eagles and zero for the Seahawks. And it's a W in Seattle. And they did outgain them on a per-play basis, to go back to that point. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately even though there were long swaths of the game where the offense didn't touch the ball at all because of the fact that, you know, they went, I think they ran nine plays on their first two or three drives combined and Philadelphia was possessing the ball so long, but it was still only a 10 nothing game. And the Seahawks in the second half managed to move the ball quite effectively. The Drew Locke's EPA the, for the game was quite good. The possession after the first Julian Love pick was just like, are you kidding me? This is how we're going to go down? Because the Eagles could have ended the game. Oh, very easily. In, in one series. And it's just like, we're going to go down with two Ken Walker runs, more or less, in the wide. Like, Ken Walker, in the end, had a good game. But that is that is the frustrating part of the Ken Walker experience, is you have the big plays, and then you also have those plays where it's two carries for five yards. I mean, that's it. That's every running back. What that is is the running experience. Yes. The, the Ken Walker experience the, is the, the play where he ran on... backwards and lost four oh, yards. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That that's was a the one. Ken Walker. Experience. But also Ken Walker, but considering how well he played overall, he earned himself that one. I I agree. But also, if you understand the value of running and passing, we thought that this was a really good Ken Walker game. Pete Carroll talked about after the game about sticking with the run in this one. His EPA was zero. <laughs> yeah. Game. Yeah. Or maybe point one. Yeah. You you win by passing, and and this and game, that's how they won. They won with Drew Locke passing the ball, and look, Locke played well last week at San Francisco, and again that the Seahawks really never had a chance to win, as we discussed on the pod. This was a different situation where the game was in his hands, and he, with the help of DK Metcalf, coming up with some terrific catches on that final drive, and an amazing catch from Jackson Smith and Jigba for the touchdown. Like Jackson Smith and Jigba has two game-winning touchdowns. That's wild. <laughs> in like kind of like an unassuming rookie season so yeah. far. And I would say even underwhelming, perhaps. And yet, yeah, they still have not fully activated JSN. It's interesting, QBR for Drew Locke and Jalen Hurts was exactly the same 
56.6, and I feel like they did such drastically different ways of getting there. Because Jalen Hurts, it was all running, more or less. Like, the Jalen Hurts passing experience, 17 of 31 for 143 yards. Yeah. Like, what they did to Jalen Hurts in this game is what this defense, the much maligned by us and everyone defense, is designed to do. Yeah. And they didn't give up the big play. There, there really weren't even... They took the shot on the play, right, to Quez Watkins, right, where they threw it up that Julian Love picked off. And then literally their two deepest passes, I think, were picked off. Of the that game. sounds right, yeah. So if if that's what you're doing, I mean, you have to give Julian Love a lot of credit. But like, A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith both having five catches for 50 yards, and then Dallas Goddard at four for 30, like, they just did nothing through the air in this game. I mean, we talked going in that basically, you know, Goddard had been somewhat more effective, that basically all of their success was to A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. And the Seahawks managing to keep those guys in check, therefore, by definition, pretty much means you've kept the Eagles passing attack in check. When I was talking about the offense just being a weird offense, I was like, they're weird, and I feel like they lull you to sleep, and then they hit you with the deep ball. I and think that's they, what they're hoping for, yeah. I mean, they never just literally is the Quez Watkins like, pass that was ultimately the only one where they kind of tried to do that, and that ended up not working. But there's just so much running for a yeah, few those were yards. His two attempts of longer than thirty yards. There was also both picked. Also a deep pass to DeAndre Swift. I don't don't remember that one. I can't say. I think that might have been thrown out of bounds. That would that would make more sense. Yeah, I think that's what that that was. It was like a oh, could that be intentional grounding? Mm. His longest completion in this game was or error completion was seventeen yards. So yeah. I mean, I think you have to give the Seahawks defense credit in this game and their secondary in particular credit in this game. And unfortunately for many out there, because again, the experience wasn't great overall. And if you talk about it, one drive going differently and maybe even literally maybe even, I guess, the last two, if that Eagles drive, they come down, kick a field goal. I'm like, this game needs to be over. If this game goes to overtime, I am not liking our odds. So in that setting, the Eagles offense seems seems well designed to handle. They just, they're, they're really, and I don't, I don't like doing this after the Seahawks just had a huge win against them. They're just not that good of a team. Like overall, this is, it's probably about comparable to beating the Vikings, the Saints. I still think they're a better team than the Vikings at this stage because at no point during the game did I see Nick Mullins. I mean, yes, sure. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. Jordan's is still a very good quarterback. I mean, they have a plus 18-point differential, which do you know, literally those two I, teams I'm I just named. Aware. I've been, been already posted about it on did he? Twitter. Oh, I didn't see that. Yes. But also, like, plus 17 for the Rams. It's like, that's kind of the territory, and I don't want to diminish this win for the Seahawks. Because guess what? They lost at home by, like, 30 points to the Rams. The Seahawks? Yes. Yes. No, and that's why it's a good win. And they also beat the Lions on the road. We'll always have that victory. And that's why this team is so frustrating, the Seahawks team. Who but now... that's what 500 teams, you know, average teams are. Like, people will always say, oh, I can't believe how frustrating this team is. Well, yeah, that's the definition it's... of a mediocre team is sometimes you randomly play a really good game and you beat a good team, and sometimes you randomly play a bad game and you lose to a bad team. That's not exactly what they're frustrating for, though, is that the difference between them being a vir not a lock necessarily, but basically a virtual lock for the playoffs 
was one Jason Myers field goal. Uh, but again, that's that's what happens. These margins matter more. But those were... margins are frustrating margins. I agree. You take the Bengals game or that Rams game, and this team, like, they kind of lost well, to the Well, particularly the Rams him. game, because it also would have the potential Sw- to flip the tiebreaker. Swung the tiebreaker. Tie I mean, literally, it was just, they got there. They got there. With an and Gino, Gino delivered Smith. that drive that, you know... Ugh. Drew Locke had today, uh, obviously different circumstances, less time on the clock, and and just trying to get a field goal in that situation. But, I mean, ultimately the Seahawks are minus 35, if you want to talk about point differential. The the only thing that is that is also frustrating about this is are, this weekend across the NFL, a lot of parity, some good, good outcomes for the Seahawks. And do you want to know what happened like Moses? That's the sound of the seas parting for the San Francisco 49ers. Oh, no. <laughs> because there just are not competitors for the Niners in the NFC in the way that you look at how the Cowboys were destroyed by the Bills, right? Like, that was kind of it we were hanging our hat on. And the, the things are looking very good for the 49ers. It is December 18th. Super Bowls are not won in December or whatever in the same way that you cannot win a game in the first quarter. Super Bowls are not won in December. A lot can happen until then. But it is looking right now like the seas are parting for the Niners to win the NFC. That's fine. That's great, actually, because like long-term, winning at a big level is more costly to your team. <laughs> yeah. So it's this not like, like the Seahawks are going to win the Nick Super- Saban couldn't be recruiting because he was out there winning national championships. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it's... The- it's not like it's 2013 and only one of the Seahawks or the 49ers can get the one seed and the other team is going to get stuck with the five seed. The Seahawks aren't, aren't in that conversation at all. We can't even, like the 49ers, we're, they're on a totally different level. We need to be thinking about the LA Rams, the Vikings, the New Orleans Saints, or Tampa Bay, whoever is out of that morass. And the, these are the teams that you're worried I, about. I agree. And the this, Atlanta Falcons and Green Bay I mean, Packers this, suffering this crucial losses it. this weekend. This was, every game is a must-win game. You know, we talk about the Seahawks playing in the playoffs. We talk about the, the Pac-12 Conference Championship was a de facto playoff game. These are all de facto playoff games. You're playing maybe Will Levis in the playoffs next weekend. You're playing Mason Rudolph in the playoffs the weekend after that. Like, that is what the Seahawks are doing. In the... I don't, I don't know if I even want to say it. You know what? that the most Seahawksy scenario here is. Would be to lose to the Cardinals. And yeah, win. they win the next two. Everybody starts counting them into the playoffs, and then they lose to the Cardinals <sighs> at home. That's or not no, home. it's That's on, on the road. Oh, okay, no, then they got a great chance of winning it. There we go. That's true. Uh, anyway, I, it was just, it was so fun. Have we talked enough about Julian Love here? Oh, Julian Love. You know, the Beatles once said, all you need is love. And it turned out that was advice for how to build your safety room. <laughs> yeah. There was one person who was... No- I think they really missed Devin Witherspoon in this game. I, I really genuinely think that they did. And there's something about his physicality and his speed that like some of those DeAndre Swift runs, I don't think that they're gaining more yards in the passes if Spoon is out there, but I do think the run game is a little bit more stout. Like There were some plays where you looked at the people who were chasing down Jalen Hurts, DeAndre Swift, and it was like, damn, Spoon would have been there. Uh, that was actually the play that was more scary to me. You mentioned, you know, when Hurts throws deep in the past that got picked off by Julian I mean, I Love. Wasn't it was the of it. play before when he was running around for like an hour, and it was like, really, nobody, none of these offensive linemen have crossed the line of scrimmage in this period of time. <laughs> he held. Nobody's held anyone. Yeah. How is this possible? 
but thankfully there was no one open. Uh, no, Leonard Williams also playing a very good game. Like, you can see why what the Seahawks see in Leonard Williams. I think they, they are going to try very hard to bring him back. The issue with Leonard Williams wasn't Leonard Williams. The issue with Leonard Williams was, A, they weren't who they thought they were. And B, even if they were who they thought they were, a second-round pick is too much to give up for just about any non-edge defensive player. For, for the player. right to pay Leonard Williams. Yeah. But, like, w- whether it's a comp pick or not, if if they get any sort of, you know, inside track to re-signing Leonard Williams, seems happy here, uh, maybe it'll make it a little bit better. But, like, literally, we can't have a conversation about bad trades and Jamal, Jamal Adams still being on the team. Like, it, it just... Literally, there was not a moment where I thought to myself, well, Jamal Adams would have been helpful in that situation. Spoon was the only one that I thought of. I mean, there was moments early in the game where I thought to myself, you know, you're, you're running out of scapegoats, Seahawks fans, because we've tried it without Jamal Adams. We tried it with Ken Norton Jr. as defensive coordinator. Like, we've tried a lot of different things, and there's only one common denominator. But then the Seahawks defense bent but didn't break throughout the rest no, of this game. No, they, they played a very good game defensively. There were so many moments where I was like, now is the part. They just aren't the Niners. That's the thing that I have to remind myself about the Eagles, is they're not the Niners, they're not the Cowboys offensively. Because there are those moments against those two teams that we have played repeatedly over these last few weeks where you just you give them that moment and you're like, the game is over, Right? Like, you punted in the situation, the game is over. And the Eagles are not at that caliber. And the reality is, nobody else who they play for the rest of the season is going to be at that caliber. Our brains are programmed from these last three brutal weeks of the Niners, the Cowboys, and the Niners again, that if you leave any inch, any opening, they are going to come down and score. I, but in this in this type of situation, Pete Carroll may be playing a little bit more the type of game he thinks he's playing. I actually, when they kicked the field goal, the second field goal, Jason Myers, in my head, I was like, I don't. I know that statistically, logically, that is not the right decision, but I do. I do not mind it because I thought they would might get themselves into the position that they got themselves into. Fun fact: If I'm reading this correctly, coming into tonight, the Eagles had a better offensive DVOA than the Cowboys. That is absurd. I agree, it's absurd, but <laughs> that it is it is a true statement. So I thought, particularly against sometimes the defense, there's glitches in the computer. I mean, I don't know if you saw the Cowboys-Bills game. It was not not a great testament to the Oh, Cowboys. that's why the Cowboys went way down. <laughs> yeah. I see. So the Cowboys dropped to ninth. That is a better... The Cowboys offense that the Seahawks played is better than that offense. Did, the, did a bunch of players get injured before the Bills game? Okay. Uh, anyways, in the context of the Seahawks defense going against the Eagles offense, I thought like when they punted on fourth and one... Which, obviously, they were going to. They were out there on 34. I think the Eagles like, are going to also go down after that game, I guess is what I'm saying. But they might not, like I said. They averaged 4.9 yards per play against the Seahawks. Yeah, but... Against success, one of the worst defenses in the league. It's the success rate that was still so good. Because a lot of that... You do, you know where you don't get very many yards per play? When you're just picking up first downs? Well, when you're sneaking to pick up first downs and touchdowns, those pick up very few yards per play, but have a great EPA, as it turns out. So there's, there's different ways, you know, look, all of these are abstractions to evaluate teams. Is there anything else we need to say about this game? I Like, it, do you feel like you're going to maintain that excitement level going into Tennessee? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm excited that they got through the stretch. I mean, it also helps, like, they are now, you know, you'd have men's basketball plays Eastern on Thursday, but they're basically in their holiday break. 
uh, as, as women's basketball has an even bigger game coming up this week. But, you know, they're, they've cleared out of the way. You know, football isn't playing a game until New Year's Day. Like, the Seahawks have this window here. The Kraken aren't exactly grabbing the the imagination of the Seattle sports fan. The, the draft lottery has already happened. The Mariners were still waiting on them. <laughs> Striking free agency. It's been another week. Any day now. <laughs> the, Mariner, the Mariners haven't done anything. This is our, our weekly. How many weeks are we on countdown for the Mariners to do a thing? <laughs> they, they, they did some things before. <laughs> they since, have done things. Since the salary dumps, they have not done anything. Putting a lot of pressure on Luis Urias. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, if there used to be 538 you could click on each game and be like your the playoff Times does this they do they still do it yeah okay so can you can you do that for me right now of if course. the Seahawks win out what their playoff odds would be because I assume that they're pretty high I also think that they are pretty high and I, I think this this was it we talked about that the Seahawks needed to win a game during the stretch so they're at 45 percent overall right now okay but that understands the schedule and who they're playing yeah it's based on the average outcome yeah it's greater than 99 percent to make the playoffs if they went out okay so they are a virtual lock if they went out yes i think enough of the other teams play each other wow in the in the wild card hunt play each other that some of them have to lose so i mean we'll see it's game by game but i think there should be excitement around the seahawks it's funny again what is what is the pelton cast golden rule you won't know, don't know how you're going to feel about things until they happen. You don't know how you're going to feel about things until they happen. And we are here in this moment. And all of a sudden, the Seahawks are exciting again. It literally took one drive. That, that's why this is the way it is. And that's why sports are fun and frustrating. Because there's one drive. Drew Locke to DK Metcalf. Drew Locke to Jackson Smith and Jigba. Drew Locke not throwing an interception on that series. And all of a sudden, boom, the Seahawks are in a pretty solid they have a pretty solid window to make the playoffs. And that's all that we can ask for right now. And I will also say, outside of the Niners, every other team in the NFC looks beatable. I, I still don't feel good about the Seahawks' chances against the Cowboys, but we know that we can, they can keep it competitive I mean, against them. every other team is beatable. So if the Seahawks go 2-1 and one in their remaining three games, the New York Times pre- upshot predictor has them somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters to make the playoffs. Wow. Apparently, the Titans is a better game to lose than at home to the Steelers. Why that is the case, I don't know. But uh, obviously, the Cardinals game is the one you want to lose of that trio the least because it would affect your division conference record NFC for tiebreakers. Uh, record. Well, so no, I'm way more in. Because again, I didn't know how I'd feel until it happened. It happened, and it felt fucking great. Because when you see 20,000 Eagles fans leave upset, finally... Finally, for once, we can send a large fan base home upset, and I hope that that's something I can tell you what's going to happen on New Year's Eve. There's going to be a large fan base for another team from Pennsylvania, and I hope that we can do that again, because that is the sweetest thing when people come into your house and think that they could push you around, and they get Drew locked against reigning MVP? No, Mahomes on the MVP. Against, at various times, MVP favorite. Jalen Hurts, who went 17 of 31 for 143 yards or whatever. It was a sweet win. And you have to give Pete Carroll credit for it. All right, we'll come back to the 
Titans at the end of the pod. I think the Seahawks are getting the hammer this week. They all it took was one win. And that's what I'm Zosky's saying. Seahawks not playing. That's, it has been it, it has been a really annoying time period, right? When you, we saw this on the schedule, we didn't know we were, we were like we'll be able to get through that. We won't be frustrated with the Seahawks. Oh, they know. I, I think I was pretty confident at that point. The, I mean, at the very least, you knew that the Seahawks had to like store up wins like a squirrel preparing yes. for the winter. And that's why it was frustrating. But also they played, I don't know where the Niners rank oh, like historically in DVOA right now. I assume oh, it's good. Third historically. The whole time. They played that team two of the last three weeks. I... Of course it sucks being a Seahawks fan. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, you're not wrong. I like mean... how many of the last handful of weeks have the Seahawks played a team that was number one or two in DVOA and was historically great. Like, it's never going to be fun to play those teams. Uh, in 2013, it was fun to play those teams. But I agree with your take. Well, in 2013, we couldn't play those teams because we were those teams. But you could have DVOA bowls. Uh, we should also say, hey, good for Drew Locke. Like, his oh. post-game interview with Lisa Salter is terrific, kind of going through the you know, the second guessing that happens when you go such a long period of time without playing an NFL, a meaningful snap in an NFL regular season game and how last week, you know, got him thinking, hey, I can do this and then pays it off. And, you know, of course, gave a lot of credit to his teammates for picking him up as, as was deserved. I think Drew Locke played honestly pretty awesome these last two weeks for being Drew Locke, especially. I still want Geno back. And I, I would have to assume that every indication is that Gino and Spoon will be back next week against the Titans. Yeah, I mean, Pete Carroll basically said he will start. So, but after seeing, it was interesting to see Drew Locke for a couple of weeks. And my confidence level between the two quarterbacks is far and away toward Geno Smith. It'll be interesting to see what this ends up meaning for Drew Locke this offseason. But, you know, he has established, I think, that he has improved from when he was quarterbacking in Denver. All right, let's get into the weekly podcast, starting with this week's toasts. We begin with congratulations to UW Women's Hoops, which is ranked in the AP poll for the first time since 2017. finally. At number 23. We've been monitoring this since they won at Washington State to go 10 Monitoring this? Literally just looking at the poll. <laughs> yeah. We were monitoring the Seahawks game earlier. <laughs> we monitor a lot of things. It's just looking at it. It's clicking refresh on the rankings page. All right, congrats to UW men's basketball guard Severe Wheeler, named Pac-12 Player of the Week after he had 19 points and a career-high tying 14 assists, and the Huskies had it all the way win over Seattle U. We'll discuss that later in the pod. And then congrats to former UW Edges coach and special teams coordinator Eric Schmidt, who was hired as the defensive coordinator at San Diego State. UW quality control coach C.J. Magorisk joining him as safeties coach. So kind of interesting that these, by all accounts, are going to be the only promotions from this UW staff. Like the hiring cycle just kind of came and went, and Ryan Grubb is still the Huskies offensive coordinator. Yeah, are there jobs that are still out there for Ryan Grubb? Not, not jobs that he would take. Presumably. Really? Yeah. Unless something shakes through, shakes free after the, you know, after the bowl cycle, and that causes, you know, some sort of trickle down effect. If it's like someone taking an NFL head coaching job or that sort of thing, or getting fired unexpectedly, I wonder if. I would assume that there were conversations that were had with Ryan Grubb. I we didn't hear that he specifically interviewed for any jobs, did we? Nope. Uh, I wonder if there was word put out on the street that Ryan Grubb was looking for a specific type of job 
And I think that there might have been programs in a certain tier who thought that they were the type of tier for Ryan Grubb, but ultimately were not. And so, you know, we, we've seen this with coordinators at large programs, not UW size programs, but we've seen this with coordinators at large programs that it's basically like you're going to take one of the 25 best jobs in the country or not because you're getting paid well here at UW. It's a cushy situation. He obviously knows Kalen DeBoer very well. Like, I think UW obviously wanted him to be there through the transition to the Big Ten and I think is obviously doing whatever they can to maintain Ryan Grubb as their offensive coordinator. But if the right opportunity didn't present itself and he's like, I can do this shit and wait for it to happen, if he's viewing it as basically like your levels of long-term success as a coach depend on this decision. Yeah. That waiting out this decision and, and look, who knows what could happen? Like maybe the entire, the, the game can pass Ryan Grubb by. Maybe he, I just, I think that the chance to be the coach at mid tier power five conferences will be there in a couple of years. But if things keep going well, the chance to be the coach at one of the 20 best programs in the country will also be there in a few years. And that's there are these two trajectories for your career. And if you can wait on one of those, the trajectory for your career, the money, the resources, everything about it is radically different. So that there could be more to him not getting not taking a job this offseason than just no one offering. Right. I mean I I do feel like Michael Penix Jr. is going to the NFL. Roma Junse is surely going with him. Like to me, I would think this is probably the the time to cash in on my stock. But if the right opportunity isn't there, the right opportunity isn't there. The other situation that we we are monitoring, uh, Jeff Tedford not coaching the bowl game for Fresno State due to health concerns that previously caused him to step away when Kaywin DeBoer was hired as his replacement before Tedford returned to the sidelines as DeBoer's replacement at Fresno State. What was the situation that Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb took over, though? A really good one, yeah. No, I'm saying at UW, what was the situation that they took over? You're saying Michael Penix is leaving, Roma Dunze. Like, at the same time, like, Roma Dunze was a good player. Roma Dunze wasn't Roma Dunze until Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer got there. Does that make sense? But there was Not... like a lot of talent there that had been underutilized. I think it was a really ripe situation for a coach. There's still after Roma Dunze, like when Katie was asking me yesterday who the wide receivers are next year, and it's like, we don't know for sure, but seems like Jalen McMillan's coming back. Probably. There's Jeremy Bernard. Yep. Giles Jackson? Yep. Like Redshirt. There is there is a lot of receiver, Boston. A receiver talent still on this roster. I, I mean, I'm not saying that they're all of a sudden going to be the John Donovan era offense. I'm saying they were Michael Penix Jr. finished second in the Heisman voted. There's a lot of room to go down from sure. there. Sure, yes, there is. So. But I, I think we'll talk about this when we talk about Will Rogers because it's more of a Will Rogers conversation than it, it is. It sort of is. Will Rogers never met an offensive coordinator he didn't like. Uh Mariners saying farewell to backup catcher Tom Murphy, who signed a two-year, $8 million deal with the Giants that includes a third-year at $250,000 team buyout, according to my ESPN colleague Jeff Passan. We talked about him a few weeks ago. That's a great deal for Murph. Yeah. Uh, how productive he was last season. Hadn't been as productive in more extended playing time in 2021 when Cal Raleigh took over as the starting catcher and just had had a tough time staying healthy. Uh, which, you know, kind of limited his market, but, you know, a pretty good 
pretty good deal for a backup catcher at that stage of his career and not something the Mariners probably were willing to pay given their financial constraints. Uh, one thing we did learn some more about the Seattle Times, some additional reporting that, so in addition to the the uh, Comcast move to put the, the Root Sports in the premium tier, also this season with Warner Brothers Discovery exiting the RSN market, the Mariners are going to be responsible for producing their own broadcasts as well as potentially Kraken broadcasts. The Blazers, I believe, produced their own broadcasts. Uh, so they weren't doing that beforehand. Yeah. This so was in pro- in part partnership with Warner. Who, all, who also owned a minority share in Root Sports with the Mariners owning the controlling share. So they were, you know, the ones responsible for, you know, cameras and and things of that nature and the in the broadcast talent so that's an additional expense there's a possibility that they could pool with mlb who's been doing these broadcasts for some of the teams that lost their local tv deals when bally sports exited the market or got out of some of its worst contracts so that's an option but either way it adds to kind of the financial challenges the mariners are facing because of their tv deal not uniquely but among many teams in baseball so is it all this whole thing still haven't signed anyone in front <laughs> Which continues to move slowly. It's not like necessarily any of the targets we were talking about are off the board. I mean, this seems to be the the trend that's happening is it's been happening for a very, very long time and it seems like it's accelerating quite quickly. Is the trend is moving toward more national ownership, right? Rather than local ownership that isn't like partnership I mean, with national ownership of rights. I mean, in terms of, like, the MLS model? Yeah. I mean, the MLS is making so little off of their TV deals that I don't think it's really comparable. But the, I mean, there's a I, few baseball teams that are making money from their local TV deals, but it doesn't seem like almost anybody else is, right? It's kind well, of like... Well, the past, everyone was. That's what I'm saying. Right now, there there is basically, like, extreme haves and have-nots with regards to local TV deals in baseball. Yes, Partially because of the fact, yeah, I guess, you know, in the bigger markets, those cheap deals still remain viable. So, like, you know, the Yankees and their part ownership of the Yes Network, that's not going to be an issue necessarily anytime soon. And the Dodgers have a great deal. But, like, anyone below that tier, probably, it's just a matter of when, not if. And the other thing I'd say is this is, this is happening in the NBA as well and in the NHL. But local TV revenue is a way bigger driver in baseball than it is in those sports, you know, particularly the NBA, where it's much more about the national TV deals yes. than it is about the local TV deals, even if that is still a huge source of revenue for some of the big market teams. I wonder if their situation's coming. I wonder if college, more than, more than we looked at this and we were just like, oh, it's villainous of the networks to basically pool the teams together to force conference realignment. I do wonder if... I feel like these conversations haven't happened that much among ownership groups. But if there was, if baseball moved, right, the big market teams are basically not going to allow any sort of like extremely important MLB deal that encompasses everything, like the Apple TV deal. But are we eventually going to move to radically unequal rights for all, there's a national TV deal or whatever, and we have radically unequal rights for each of the different teams? Because if you were an Apple TV sponsoring baseball, you're literally buying the Dodgers and the Yankees and a handful of other teams, right? It's the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Braves. Like, it's not that many more teams beyond that. I mean, also one of the things you can do now 
is, I mean, you can't really exactly quantify this, but you can to a much greater degree quantify what degree or what percentage of our subscriptions are driven by Yankees fans yes. versus Diamondbacks fans versus Mariners fans. So maybe that's a way to, you know, but right now these things are the pot. generally operating. Professional sports are generally operating on the national TV deals are split equally are split equally. Yes. But like if I'm an owner of a team from whatever, obviously you get the added benefits of, you know, the, the value of the actual franchise and you get all the, you know, the merchandising money. It's like a form, of, the it's a form of revenue sharing from big markets to small markets, mm-hmm. national TV deals. But well, I do wonder, but the how dif- long is everybody going to agree to that? The difference is what are you going to threaten to do otherwise? Because it's not like you can go and join the Big Ten. There is no other baseball league to join. Let me I mean, ask I'm not saying that a question. I'm not saying that that necessarily will hold forever, but yeah. I think it's more akin to as we've talked about the difference between how college sports fans have reacted to this and the way that European soccer fans reacted to the proposed Super League, where they were going to boycott their own teams because of it. But I think were they? Were... I think I think they caved. Look, I'm not saying this is the right decision, but I think if it happened. People were gonna watch. Maybe I don't know, but it if was at least a credible Barcelona, enough. Th- Liverpool every single week. People would watch that shit. It was at least a credible enough threat that it stopped it. And I think if the Yankees were no longer in Major League Baseball and were to throw away all of that history, like the Big Ten has lasted as long as the Pac-12. The Huskies are just moving from one league to another. If you're starting an entirely new league, like live style, that's a little bit different. I, I'm just saying. I think there is. The college sports might have just been the first domino in a long line of dominoes. I It's possible. I don't know that they even were the first domino. This stat in the Seattle Times story is pretty wild. Uh, according to... Uh, According to this, uh, in the decades since the Mariners took controlling interest of Root Sports, Comcast subscriptions have fallen from 3.4 million in 2013 to roughly 1.2 million now. Holy shit. Yeah. That, I mean, even knowing the situation, that magnitude shocked me. But that's Comcast overall. In the Seattle area. Yeah. That's in the Seattle area. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not nationally. I guess that would be so few people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, why would it be relevant to root sports? How that's what I'm saying. Are... Okay. Yeah. yeah, no, that's that's a significant margin. Yeah. There's a reason these things are happening. All right. Well, speaking of the Seattle Kraken, they exploded for seven goals in a lot of the Blackhawks on Thursday before losing a shootout to LA 3-2 on the final game of their homestand. On Monday night, they got the tying goal from Lou Tolvanen in the, the final 30 seconds of the third period at Dallas but then lost 4-3 in overtime. Still got a point from that one. Kraken now headed to Southern California to face the Kings and Ducks before having three days off over Christmas. Uh, Kraken made a move last week to try to add depth to their front line where they've been dealing with injuries, adding Tomas Tatar from Colorado for a fifth-round pick in a move that was facilitated by moving Jaden Schwartz to the long-term injured reserve with the upper body injury that's expected to sideline him into 2024. The 33-year-old winger from Slovakia had 48 points last season from the New Jersey Devils, but is off to a slow start after signing a one-year, $1.5 million deal with the Avalanche over the summer. He recorded just one goal and nine points in 27 games for Colorado. A uh, little Sounders news, Alex Rodon signed an extension through 2026 with an option for 2027, so good to ensure that the Rodons will be together for the foreseeable future. They also added center back John Bell through the MLS re-entry draft. 
Bell played just three MLS matches last season for St. Louis SC, but had played 27, including 19 starts the previous two seasons with New England Revolution. So gives the Sounders some depth at a position where they're probably going to uh, shed a few of the players they had off the bench last season. The Jamaican native is right in his prime at age 26. More relevant to you, the MLS is adopting anti-time-wasting measures tested there we go. At the MLS Next Pro level. No, I don't. It's j- fruitless, but okay. I don't think it's fruitless necessary. The off-field treatment rule requires any player down for at least 15 seconds with a suspected injury to remain off the pitch for at least two minutes of further assessment and treatment, leaving their team down a player during that period. It should be much period. farther. Much longer. Two minutes is not enough time. I, I, we'll see. I mean, that's something you can tweak over time. The punishments need to be more severe. The... Pitch clock style substitution clock requires players who are being substituted to leave the field within 10 seconds, or otherwise the incoming substitute will be required to wait in, to enter the game until the next stoppage. But you could just kick the ball out of bounds in midfield. Oh, I think it's also a minimum of 60 seconds or okay. the next stoppage. I, I, I don't totally understand the way the 60 seconds work, but I like that they've introduced an additional clock because after seeing the success of the pitch clock. More clocks. I mean, look, these are things they've tried out, but they will continue testing them. I don't think they're the final rules, but we'll see. So you and I have thought about this in other sports. They hand check rules in basketball. And you were like, you were like, basically, they're going to call a million fouls. And then eventually people are going to adjust. Yes. That's why they need to have it be frustrating for fans and players and coaches alike until they adjust. Does that make sense? That's why the like the punishment or whatever for for being down for a period of time. Like two minutes is just not enough time. It should be ten minutes or something. It should be enough time that it actually matters. Like in hockey, the penalty box. But you, what you need to remember is that two minutes feels like forever if you're down a man. I, I don't know if it does. Two minutes goes pretty fast in soccer. I suppose. But in hockey, if you go to the penalty box, the other team's chances of scoring become so much higher. They do. Right? Yeah. Like, there are actual repercussions. And in soccer, the repercussions for doing something wrong are either very extreme or almost nothing. But before, it was even even less almost nothing. Because you would have to leave the pitch and if, you know... You receive treatment, but only until the next stoppage, not for two minutes. Yeah. I I, don't, I just don't know if two minutes is enough time. Or not even the next stoppage, because I guess you could be waved on after a period of time. Literally, all people are asking for is to watch people play soccer. It is not that hard. Well. UEFA Euro 2024. <laughs> Here we come. I also have some complaints about that one, too. The draw? No, the, I mean, the draw. It's, look, the draw, we can only blame ourselves for That's the draw. Fair. But, like... The, the the thing that I have to complain about is we only got to be champions, the best team in Europe, for three years instead of four like everybody else. Well, okay. This is offensive. It's Italian erasure is what it is. <laughs> uh, well, only had to be out of the Olympics for three and years. And big doms off the sidelines. <laughs> <laughs> Eagles are 0-3 since then. That's actually a very important point. <laughs> they probably would have won that game had he not been ejected. <laughs> they probably would have stopped the Niners from scoring seven straight touchdowns after that. <laughs> Big Dom was helping him out. Uh, maybe Big Dom is uh, stealing signs. 
All right, OL Rain saw the first two picks of last Friday's NWSL expansion draft. Both come from their roster. Bay FC took defender Alyssa Melanson, and then the Utah Royals took forward Elise Bennett. Both were depth pieces for the Rain last year, with Bennett starting seven matches among 22 total played and scoring a pair of goals. So a bit of a loss there, but uh, the Rain didn't protect her after Melanson was taken because they felt like they needed to protect an extra defender. I, I don't know why the term depth pieces sounds so funny to me. It sounds like a like fashionable German person or whatever. <laughs> These are but depth pieces to me. I have no need for them. That's how they describe Julian Green. <laughs> that is that's really what it is. I have a million depth pieces like Julian Green. Please have them. Picks one and two. The Rain do not have a million depth pieces. So, uh, and certainly we'll miss Elise Bennett, who uh, uh, had some good moments last year. Uh, Sportico reported last week that the ownership group planning to pl- buy the Rain includes private equity firm Carlisle Group with a non-controlling stake. The Sounders would still manage and operate the franchise with the controlling share of the franchise. Uh, private equity is becoming common in the NWSL. Both Bay FC and the future expansion team in Boston are majority owned by private equity firms, while Utah and Portland have minority equity partners. So, what does that mean? Basically, that the Sounders are going to be somewhat beholden to this minority partner who only cares about the financial benefits and not, you know, any of the intangible benefits of sports ownership. But the plus side of this is that equity firms <laughs> is that everything's bad in their profit, <laughs> is that we're going to die someday in their profit seeking <laughs> view women's soccer is a profitable place. That actually, yeah, no, that that is a there's one silver lining aside from we're all going to die someday. <laughs> And private equity would be happy to bet on when that's going like to happen. We'd have <laughs> all too happy. I feel like we'd have more of that this week if the Seahawks had lost. The, if uh, Jalen Hurtson completed that long pass and then they had won in overtime. All right, UW Women's Basketball, we mentioned now ranked at number 23. They tied the best start in program history and completed their home non-conference schedule with a 64-32 win Saturday over St. Mary's. The Gales shot just 24.5% from the field. Huskies were able to play 11 players at least 10 minutes, with Chloe Briggs and Delea Daniels scoring 14 points apiece. Up next for the Huskies, their first non-conference road test, also the hardest non-conference game on the schedule, as they will play at Louisville on Wednesday. The Cardinals lost Haley Van Lith via transfer to uh, LSU and four of the top five scorers title from last year's Elite Eight team, but rebuilt via transfers. They lost to Alabama in the Cancun Classic, but beat Gonzaga and also won at Mississippi before getting blown out by UConn in Hartford on Saturday. They remain ranked number 19 in the AP poll, four spots ahead of the Huskies. Uh, Percy Allen of the Seattle Times reported that El Ladin, who's missed the last two games due to illness, expected to play for the Huskies, which will be a boost for them. I love this match- matchup. As Gabrielle Union would say, bring it on. A matchup like this for the undefeated Husky women yeah. with a chance to prove themselves now in the top 25. I'm excited about this one. Yeah. All right, UW men's basketball. Four p- oh, on the ACC network. <laughs> yes, the ACC network, which is not carried by... Uh, Comcast. Shocking. Alas. So I thought it was appropriate. You know, men's basketball. The only part of this game I saw was while I was a lady in line for the bathroom before attending a choir performance on Sunday night. Because I made me, it made me think of carols. You know what this game was for the Huskies? 
What's they that? won in double overtime over Seattle U, coming back from a 14-point halftime deficit. What's that? And as many as 16. It was a Noel. <laughs> for the first time since Jalen Noel. He's no longer playing for the Grizzlies. His uh, 10-day hardship contract expired. Perhaps he was in the building to inspire a Noel. Now, granted, those were much more like they'd pull out a game against a lesser non-conference foe at home by like six points because Jalen Noel made a bunch of shots down the stretch and avoided the embarrassing loss. But uh, still, I think some karmic kinship here to the Huskies, avoiding losing to Seattle U, who they had beat 17, now 18 consecutive times, a streak dating back to 1978 and Seattle U's <laughs> previous stint. Take that, Gonzaga. One. That's how long a streak should last. I 2005, mean, my ass. I definitely was thinking about, like, Seattle U is... For Seattle U, UW is our, their Gonzaga. They're gonna, there's a, a Seattle U podcast that's like, wait until <laughs> UW gets to the Big Ten. That's when everything goes down. <laughs> They definitely are doing that. The, you know what the funniest part about that is? What? The idea that there would be a Seattle U basketball podcast. Oh, there must be somewhere out there. Red Hot Red Hawks? Nah, it's too generic. Do you want to talk about other streaks? What's that? Do you know when the last time the Philadelphia Eagles beat the Seattle Seahawks was? I know that it dates back to before Pete Carroll was head coach. I had zero of my children the <laughs> last time the Eagles beat the Seahawks. <laughs> Uh, Is that incredible? Of, none of them were even alive to be diehard Philadelphia Eagles fans yet. To the, as <laughs> as if I can read a text from I, we're going back to this game from Mrs. Fantasy Genius. Mateo got so upset about the Eagles that apparently he projectile vomited all over the couch. Oh, I didn't hear that one. A- after People... I got home, he struck everybody who was in the house. His grandma. Uh, uh, Mrs. Fantasy Genius's friend, you. He was brawling with Luke on the floor. Like this, he, he honestly, this was the worst loss that he's seen, dating all the way back to September. He did when say he that, became yes. an Eagles fan. <laughs> In the eight weeks since he's become an Eagles fan, this was the worst of his losses. He doesn't even remember 2008, <laughs> the last time the Eagles beat the Seahawks. We oh, it was during them. the Jim L. Morris, or no, that was, that was the last home run season. Jim L. Morris was 2009. I feel like even Homegrid had a pretty good record against the Eagles, all things considered. Like, there was that Monday night domination in Philadelphia. For whatever reason, the Seahawks just have the Eagles number. They beat us in 2002. Wow, 42 to 0. Was that the Monday night one? No, I'm thinking if the Seahawks had a dominant Monday night win over the yeah, Eagles. Yeah, we beat them 42 oh, yeah, to okay. 0. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always in the same time of year, too. It's so strange. Like, how we. Literally December 18th, November 30th, January 5th, November 24th, December 3rd, November 20th, December I feel like those 7th. Are wildly different dates, but one but of those was a playoff game. Every, right? every, we have not played them in September or October since 2001. That is, that is pretty strange. Yes. It's always at the end of the season. I don't know. This, November 2nd was the most recent time, and that was, 2000, that was uh, 2008. That was the last one they, they won. Like, we just kept playing them over and over and over again in Decembers. I like it. It's a holiday tradition. Right up there with... Uh, I don't want to tell you about the other holiday tradition that the Seahawks have. Ruining Christmas. Ruining Day. Christmas. <laughs> oh, you do not need to tell me about that. I they, did be, they beat the Cowboys on Christmas a couple of years ago. Christmas Eve, yes. Yes, on Christmas Eve. They haven't lost on Christmas Eve. They didn't last year? 
No, they played the Chiefs on I think the twenty third. Oh yeah, I, I guess say. that was was that Festivus? I don't know. I'd have to look up look up the date. Uh, all right, back to Utah men's basketball. <laughs> anyway, they were still down eight with a little over five minutes left. Tied the game with one nineteen left on a Keon Brooks Jr. score. That was a, one of the last things I think I saw. No, I guess I saw it until that was Christmas Eve. I thought so. Oh, I thought that was the day before. All right, right. It was just well, like my expectations are so low that Seahawks can't ruin my Christmas. Yeah, that was <laughs> honestly, I was just like, we know they're going to lose the game. They were seven and eight when they lost that game. A distinctly unmemorable Christmas wow. Eve game. And no other time could the Seahawks go to seven and eight on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Inconceivable. Uh, I guess 28 seconds left is when I when I lost the uh, plot of this one. And Alex Shoemaker gave Seattle U the lead with 10 seconds left in regulation before Pac-12 Player of the Week. Severe Wheeler tipped in a Wilhelm Breidenbach miss at the buzzer to force overtime. When you think of Severe Wheeler, you think offensive rebounds, putbacks. Uh, I guess not tipped in. He, he did say he shot a layup. They were down five again with 122 left in the first overtime, but Brooks scored five in a row to tie it with 21 seconds left. Then they went to second overtime and led most of the way. Red Hawks had a chance to tie it on their final possession after a Braxton Mia turnover. Shoemaker scored a layup, was fouled with eight seconds left, missed the tying free throw. Seattle, you rebounded the missed free throw, but Shoemaker missed again at the buzzer, and the Huskies had it all the way. Yeah, I, I saw that last possession. <laughs> that was exactly the amount of this game that I watched. What, what, what was your takeaways from that last thrilling game? possession? I mean, I had, I had pulled this up. It was one of those games. The Huskies seem to have these. This is why I think this team is a little bit special in that they were down seven with about four minutes left or something like that. And similar to their comeback against San Diego State, where all of a sudden you're just like, this game's over. They're not coming back. I know this Husky team. I mean, it's different because San Diego State's a really good team. But this is still a pretty good Seattle U team. Like, this isn't a... What, what did Ken Palm have for the game? He only had them as a few-point favorites, right? Yeah, I mean, they basically did not move in the, the rankings despite playing such a close game. So. Yeah, I don't... I don't. The prediction was Huskies by four. So I, I don't think this was a bad win for it to be that close, especially with Kepnong injured. But like, also, they were treated... Ken Palm was treating it as a full home court game for Seattle U. Which uh, we know is not really the case here. Still, all things considered, I think this was fine, and I do think this Husky. By the way, you know who has the most fans at Climate Pledge Arena this weekend? It wasn't the Huskies, and it wasn't. Oh, I know who had the most fans. Was at Climate Pledge Arena? Are we? Can we toast? I I don't I don't need to toast. Should I pour one out? (laughs) To the dreams. Of the Gonzaga Bulldogs Boy, in 2023 for being dashed. I have, a long enough, I have a long enough memory that I can remember back to when Tristan talked about how good Gonzaga was on this podcast last week. Look, good good or bad, I'm happy either way when they lose. <laughs> uh, you know who looked that really was, good? That was a beautiful thing. I was driving. I was stuck in traffic. This is an even worse thing. Honestly, if you want to take being around other people, here's your ranking of three worst situations you can be in in life. <laughs> Well, this number, should be good. Number no, I'm gonna start from least annoying to most annoying. Third least annoying, Blue Jays fans walking around the city of Seattle everywhere. You see them, they're pleasant, they're fine, but you hate them somehow. Individually, no issue. 
collectively just too many of them. Number two most annoying thank situation. Thank goodness they didn't get Shohei. Number, oh, dude, that would have been... We would have just had to pack up and go. Look, John Stan, like, just move the team or whatever. Or maybe we would have had to become Blue Jays fans. Yeah, honestly. You know, I could... We're or north, so... We, we could use the trip down south. Yeah. Number two most annoying situation. Going into Lumen Field and realizing that 65 to 95% of the fans there are fans of the other team because the Seahawks secretly do not have fans anymore. Or are the the most tired fan base across the NFL. Number one most annoying situation that you can be in. Stuck in traffic. Because of Gonzaga Bulldog fans crossing the road, driving around. Where were you going from? I was in Queen Anne. I was driving from uh, Belltown to Queen Anne. Like right before the game was starting. Being so packed at Buckley's that you literally cannot walk in. Just being everywhere with their little bulldog smirks on their face oh i was despicable so that was the most annoying thing on honorable mention to crack and crack in traffic after that game the night before <laughs> but i dodged that one uh so in this to go back to that one by the way yukon donovan Klingon, very impressive in that game okay he was you know he was number one in my draft projections last year He's no longer quite number one, sadly, but still very high. All right, Donovan Klingon. Where is he at as far as? He's top 10. It's always a leading indicator. Okay, we're watching him? Yeah. Okay. Monitoring. Okay, monitoring. Keon Brooks had 22 points to go back to the Huskies, win, including three threes, uh, nine boards. Corin Johnson got the start. Oh, he's a big man. Yeah, he's a seven foot two. He's like. There's so many just giant players dominating college right now. Yeah. It's kind of strange. Uh, Corin Johnson got the start, scored 14 points. Front Kepnong had 12 points in 20 minutes before leaving due to injury. But He's uh, from... Oh, you, did you mention that, that he's from Bristol? I did not mention that. He's from Bristol, Connecticut. Oh, yeah. He well, obviously had to go to UConn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and we'll, our guy Wilhelm Breidenbach came in off the bench with Kepnong, unable to play with that injury that he should be fine from, uh, for 12 points. And then Mia finished up over time. Huskies now wrap up non-conference play Thursday against Eastern Washington. Another potential step in the uh, the path, uh, the road to Washington State, State champions. champions. Yeah, you know you got the Cougs upcoming in conference play. Uh, the Eagles went sixteen and two in Big Sky play la- before being upset in their conference tournament last year. But their leading scorer, Steel Venters, transferred to Gonzaga where he's been sidelined by a season-ending knee injury, while their other two leading scorers are are done with college. Without them, Eastern is 3-6, and six, although against a brutal schedule. They, they're one win, they only have one win against D1 competition. The other two are against non, con, uh, non-D1 foes. But all six teams that beat them are ranked in the top 100 in Ken Palm, and they played all of those games on the road. Uh, they did win at Air Force, their lowest-rated D1 opponent today. That's impressive stuff from Eastern. How do we rank the state championship in college? Like, does Washington need to run the table? Or, like, is it a belt situation? Uh, I think you'd have to do point differential is a tiebreaker, like the in-season tournament if Washington State and Washington split their two games. If they split. So are they playing this year for the state championship, though, now that we've beaten Gonzaga? Or is Gonzaga's... Do they have other games in state? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, they, I have to see whether they play Washington State, which I don't think they do. 
I think by not, you know, it's like the... So it's a belt situation. No, it's like the Pac-12 where you you throw out your games against non-mutual opponents, basically. But that means Gonzaga cannot win. In my conclusion. Unless, I mean, but what if we lose to Eastern and then they beat Eastern? They're not playing Eastern. This, that was their only game against a Washington opponent. Well, sorry. So they're out of it. They're State champs, it's out of the question. Out of the picture, Gonzaga. I know this is what they're playing for. This year? <laughs> Last year, they may have won it at, ooh, checks notes, 1-0 against Washington opponents. There we go. <laughs> Impressive victory against Mississippi Valley State. Really tough ones coming up there for you, Gonzaga. But it's just, you know, it's really important for them to get back in a conference play and just, you know, get San Francisco again. Well, San Francisco's and, good. They I beat Seattle the, U. The University of the Pacific and the Portland Pilots and Pepperdine. Like, you really want to hunker down and get into that part of the schedule for Gonzaga. I mean, they're hosting San Diego State. That's a legit game. Is it? Yeah. They play Kentucky. They do play Kentucky. That That's probably a more legit game, yes. Uh, especially they're going to Kentucky on that one. So They just want to get back to the meat of the season, though, and play Santa Clara. All right, let's talk about UW football's transfer additions. Most notably, Mississippi State quarterback Will Rogers, as reported by my ESPN colleague Pete Vamel. Uh, Rogers was a four-year starter, the first three under the late Mike Leach, and second in SEC career passing yards. Although, as is often the case with Leach QBs, it doesn't really tell an accurate story of his effectiveness. He completed 71% of his passes under Leach in the air raid, but for just 6.5 yards per attempt, weaker than any Leach QB at Washington State. Now, the positive is, of course, he was doing this against SEC defenses, not Pac-12 defenses. His QBR under Leach was 69, which would have ranked 6 in the Pac-12 last year, just ahead of Cameron Ward, which is kind okay. of interesting is Cameron Ward is like the bell of the ball in the transfer portal right now. Mm, do you th- Because he's basically the last good quarterback who hasn't committed? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he, like, you know, if we're drafting them, he's not going ahead of certainly Dylan Gabriel yeah. and probably... Duke Leonard? Riley Leonard. Riley Leonard. Duke Leonard. I don't know where I got, where I got that name from. Probably because he played oh, at he Duke. Oh, he played at Duke, yes. <laughs> that, that, would be, that would make sense. Uh, he had an air raid background in high school, and so last year was his first time in a pro-style system under new offensive coordinator Kevin Barbe. His completion percentage dropped to 60%, and his yards per attempt barely improved to 69 He was also sacked on 6% of dropbacks from 4.5% previously. But the good news is Mississippi State's offense was way worse with veteran backup Mike Wright replacing him in blowout losses to Auburn and Kentucky. He completed 51% of his passes in the two games he started for 4.5 yards per attempt. So it's possible the Mississippi State offense was just really bad last year. Yeah, and, and the, the scheme and the system and the offensive talent just wasn't the same, which is why we want two players from Mississippi State. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean... <clears throat> it may have been a case of trying to fit square pegs into round holes, but it's I, not like the entire offense. You know, that's that was taking the entire offense from an air raid and putting it into as opposed to individual players. Yes. Right? I mean, I personally am excited about bringing in Will Rogers as a veteran quarterback who has years starting under his belt and as somebody who, Kalen DeBoer, we've seen him do this. We weren't talking about Jake Hayner. Before Kalen DeBoer got a hold of Jake Hayner? I mean, I think actually very notably we did talk about Jake Hayner. There was a whole emergency podcast where we talked a lot about Jake Hayner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was not positive. That's true. It's not his fault. 
but definitely was not Jake Browning's fault because Jake Browning did nothing wrong and continues to do nothing wrong, including doing the Seahawks a huge favor in the wildcard race by beating the Vikings in OT on Saturday. Did nothing wrong, isn't doing anything wrong, will not do anything wrong. Jake Browning revenge game Jake on Browning. Saturday. Uh, I love him just showing a little bit of personality too. I feel like Jake Browning hasn't gotten that many opportunities to do that. The the personality for Jake Browning up to that had been being this, vaccinated. The story, <laughs> the storyline of his family being in Joe Burrow's suite at the games, <laughs> showed them multiple times. Uh, but Will Rogers, as an experienced quarterback coming in, I just think basically, obviously, Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb, this was the quarterback that they wanted. You know, I don't think that they just ended up at the place of exactly where UW fell within the transfer quarterbacks. Like, they couldn't have gotten anybody else. They've been rumored with Will Rogers for a long time. I mean, since the moment his name appeared in the transfer portal. I think it was pretty much done. Like, they they looked around the country, and I think that they preferred Will Rogers probably over Cam Ward. So, look, it. there are certain types of quarterbacks for different systems that make more sense. And I think if they're looking at Will Rogers and they're saying this is the type of quarterback, given his experience, some of his accuracy, which is pretty solid so far, that they can mold into a quarterback similar to what they did with Jake Hayner putting him in the NFL, similar to what they did with Michael Penix getting him to number two in the Heisman. I think at this point, you know, we can judge this later. You don't know how you're going to feel about something until it happens. But going into the situation, Whomever Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb want to have as the quarterback at UW, whoever they wanted from the transfer portal, is who we should trust as the right player. More so than whatever they've done anywhere else, right? If this was Cam Ward, we'd be more excited. If this was Kyle McCord, would we would we be more excited? Because to me, you I don't know who that. Kyle McCord is, but... I, yeah, I have not done that. He's Ohio, Ohio he... State's quarterback and oh, transferred okay. to Syracuse. Uh, is, he, is he better or worse than Duke Leonard? Duke Leonard. Duke Leonard was actually one of my favorite actors in the 50s. <laughs> Similar to Will Rogers. But uh, Duke Leonard, historically, when you look back on some of the things that he said, they're kind of questionable. Uh, <laughs> just has not aged very well, but he was a star in his time. Will Rogers, though, as a quarterback, having that experience, coming into this offense... It gives the Huskies the chance to run it back as much as possible post Michael Penix Jr. Because there was a reality. We saw Michael Penix Jr. He wasn't like the number one player in the transfer portal, right? No. Jane Daniels wasn't the number one player in the transfer portal. And that was number one and number two in the Heisman. Like you, you do not win college football games in the transfer portal that way. You win college football games by building depth, finding the right quarterback, fitting them into your scheme and developing them. But and I think there's a skill set element with Michael Penix Jr. that first off, we knew it worked in the Kalen DeBoer offense because we'd literally seen it in the Kalen DeBoer offense. And that's the one thing I wonder about is like when Will Rogers has been successful, it's been a lot of short stuff. That's what the air raid is. It has not been his prowess as a deep passer. And that was such an important part of the UW offense. And we saw when they didn't have the deep shots available, suddenly Ryan Grubb's playbook didn't, you know, get receivers open to the same degree when they weren't able to throw the ball deep in weather in the second half of the season. So we'll see. But so far, there, there's if if you've done it one time, you have to prove it a second time. And right now, Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer have done it two times in a row. 
So there's almost nothing to suggest that we should be nervous about it. We talked about this last I, week. I mean, if it's a sample size of as, two. But two is a bigger sample size than a lot of things. I mean, still, it's two. The entire sport, the entire sport we're talking about is basically built off small sample sizes, right? Yeah, that's how you do things like, you know, give the they, largest contract in the sport to a guy that you end up desperately trying to fire two years later. You're thrilled you have a chance to fire him for cause. Jimmy Lake? No. Who? I mean, Jimmy Lake didn't have the largest contract in the sport. I'm talking about Michigan State. Oh, God. Yeah. I, I agree. But at the same time, Mel Tucker didn't do it twice. Mel Tucker did it once for one season. <laughs> it is, it and is then true. they were very bad after that. So it, they've done it two times in a row. I think we should be excited about Will Rogers. He's going to go. He's almost certainly going to be the starting quarterback next year. But having that competition in spring and in fall ball with Austin Mack, the Huskies are going to end up with a good quarterback. I mean, I think they probably will. I whether he is the biggest name quarterback. Look, do I think Dylan Gabriel is going to be How good? How much better? Of you do you... course Dylan Gabriel is going to be good. I mean, Will Rogers brings the big game experience and things like that. I guess the question is, how much more confident are you in the UW offense with Will Rogers at quarterback rather than Dylan Morris? I am way more confident. I would like to see Dylan Morris. And do you want to know why I'm way more confident? Because Dylan Morris transferred. <laughs> I, true. There is an outcome. Things happen for a reason. Dylan Morris yeah, there's always a didn't reason. transfer. Because you're, so now you're questioning the under the twenty six and two Kalen DeBoer right now. Yeah, what, because what again, has happened that makes you that gives you Mike Hopkins won Pac twelve Coach of the Year two years in a row in the Huskies he extended. Didn't him. make the NCAA tournament one of those times. We're playing in the fucking playoff and undefeated. Literally, whatever Kalen DeBoer in the moment thinks is the right thing to do is the right thing to do. I think this is there, a dangerous approach historically. But look, we can, I, we can I, I react like to remember after, when we re but, recorded podcasts about how we unfailingly, unquestioningly trusted Pete Carroll and John Schneider's decision-making on personnel. And guess where that got the Seahawks and the Jamal Adams trade? By that time, we definitely were not. <laughs> I, I'm, we we have the receipts the on that What trip? have the Huskies given up by bringing in Will Rogers? Their right to try to sign Cam Ward? I mean, a different I'm not quarterback? Given up anything. I just, I don't think I'm going to be unfailing. I'm not going to be blindly trusting any decision. That's what I object to. It is so difficult in college football to judge the difference between scheme and player. Like, we see this going into the NFL. There's part of a reason that there's so many quarterback draft busts in the NFL is because of how difficult it is to separate player from scheme. I agree. And that's why NFL teams who are spending thousands of hours to do this have a hard time figuring that out. Literally the best— But that's why you shouldn't be that confident about any one evaluation. The, the best, that's the point. The best evidence that we have available to us is Kalen DeBoer's. No, the best evidence that we have available to us is the whole sample size of all quarterbacks that have ever existed. But also, you're you're implying that they chose Will Rogers versus like what is? I what don't would you know. rather they have I'm done? I'm just saying they I'm needed not, a fucking quarterback, and they went wrong. and got a fucking quarterback. I'm just saying I'm not as confident about the 2024 UW offense as you seem to be. Okay, be less confident. See where that gets you. So the rest <laughs> of the Huskies transfers, I I just. 
that that's fine. We can go into it knowing that it could be a transitional year, but at the same time, it's going to be a transitional year with a lot of experienced players on offense and on the roster. This is so much better than going into a season with true freshman Jake Browning, who obviously would end up being a very good player. But that's what had to happen in the past was you had to go through the pre-transfer portal era. You had to go into the shit. And if Austin Mack beats Will Rogers in that competition, then let's fucking go because Austin Mack will have beaten Will Rogers in that competition. And I believe fully that he will have every opportunity to do so. I don't think that they're going to be like, it's one year of Will Rogers. If Austin Mack beats him, see you later, Will Rogers, right? Yes. So he will have every opportunity to do that in this situation, the same way that Dylan Morris had every opportunity to beat Michael Penix in that competition beforehand. And he obviously didn't because Michael Penix Jr. finished fucking second in the Heisman under Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb. There's no chance when we were there talking about Michael Penix coming to UW, and I'm not saying this is going to happen again because obviously Michael Penix is a special player, but we were not talking about there being a chance in two years that Michael Penix would finish number two in the Heisman and be robbed. Jaden Daniels not even man enough to play in the fucking bowl game. Come on. This is bullshit. As Kevin Clark tweeted, I remember when the Rely Quest Bowl used to mean something. <laughs> is that what they're playing in? Yeah. Just, it ha- I, don't, I don't know if win should matter that much, but, like, come on. It would, like, maybe you should just give out the Heisman at the end of the bowl season then. Because Michael Penix Jr. is going to be playing on New Year's fucking day no, I don't think against Penix Texas. Jr. Would, would win at the end of the bowl season, my friend. Who do you think would win? Either J.J. McCarthy or Jalen Milrow. As they're... So you're saying the winner of that game is... That's the de facto national championship? Well, I think that whoever wins that game will be favored to win the national championship. Wow! But th- there is a difference between just being like, peace, I'm gone, I'm going to the NFL, and playing on New Year's Day. That is the true Heisman Trophy winner right there. And that is what Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer have done with quarterbacks two times in a row! Anyways, the rest of the Huskies transfers. <laughs> San Diego State tackle Drew as a party, who has three years remaining after redshirting and then debuting last season. He started the final six games at right tackle for the Aztecs. Excellent size at six foot seven, so uh, in the mix at a position where the Huskies will le- lose one of their starting tackles. You know, I love this shit. Troy Fautano. I I loved getting any offensive lineman, but getting an experienced offensive lineman. Oh yeah. I was I mean, hyped on that one. I thought of you today because both of these transfers today, the other one being Montana State defensive tackle Sebastian Valdez, who has one year of eligibility remaining, uh, has earned all Big Sky honors each of the last two seasons, had 16 sacks over three years for the Bobcats. Not as big as the typical UW run-stuffing defensive tackles, but should bring more interior pass rush. I'm. Uh, you could just keep naming players. I'm hyped on all of them. Uh, I then, loved this haul. Also, we'll see whether he's is a defensive lineman or is an edge, but Arizona State defensive lineman B.J. Green the second, who had a career-high six sacks last year as a junior to rank in the Pac-12's top 10. His 11.5 tackles for loss were sixth best in the conference. At six foot one, two seventy, played interior defensive line at Arizona State, but could perhaps also play some edge on rundowns at UW. Began his career as a walk-on, oh, led the team oh, in sacks yes. as a true freshman to earn a scholarship. Oh my god! <laughs> You're like the <laughs> Vince McMahon meme. Oh yeah! Everything I read keeps getting you more excited. I didn't realize he started. That's how you know BJ Green the second has that dog in him, right? <laughs> Always been a dog, as he said. In is that what he said? Transfer. 
like the Seahawks going Devin Witherspoon and Zach Charbonnet. Back to back. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Zach Charbonnet is still a running back. But he has that dog in him. You oh, cannot question no. Zach Charbonnet having that dog in him. Undeniably, he has that dog in him. Uh, this, this is the one that I'm most excited about. I, I mean, top 10 in sacks in the Pac-12 last year? Yeah. At Arizona State. Like, they can't be getting that much pressure from other places on the line. <laughs> I don't think their their game script is facing them in a lot of favorable situations. I am. Th- this, like, B.J. Green the second is, he is, we'll see. He'll have every chance to come in and really make a difference on this D-line. Yeah, I mean, obviously a spot where the Huskies are losing two starters in Braylon Trice and Zion Tupuola Fatui. You're going to have a lot of players who have been part of the rotation Next they, season, they have but, good rotation players, but BJ Green the second again. Is. He could play interior defensive line. We'll see how they end up using him. Oh, yes. Uh, last transfer for the Huskies: Vanderbilt linebacker Ethan Barr, a team captain each of the last two years. Played four years, moved into the starting lineup as a freshman. Not particularly big tackle numbers for an off-ball linebacker, so I think he probably slots in more as a depth piece behind Alfonso <laughs> Tupatala. Oh, I, I did it again, <laughs> and Carson Bruner. Still, adding Vanderbilt to, does not have a lot of depth pieces to give away. <laughs> I'm I'm a little bit if he's coming from Vanderbilt, my skepticism about that dog being in him is a little oh. bit higher. Mississippi State, we would have been good. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Even Will Rogers, right? Uh, I'm still curious if Joquavius Marks is going to come over, but depth linebacker, important pass rusher, interior pass rush, and an offensive lineman. It's all you could ask for. I mean, isn't it? Say what you will about Will Rogers, but you have to admit this is a pretty nice haul right here. For sure. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap up talking about the upcoming week for the Seahawks (sighs) as they head to Nashville to take on the Tennessee Titans. Titans were eliminated from playoff contention with Sunday's overtime loss in Houston. They started the season 2-4 and four with Ryan Tannehill at quarterback. Will Levis replaced an injured Tannehill after the bye and earned the starting job after the first two weeks. They're now 3-5 and five with Levis as a starter. His numbers are pretty similar to Tannehill's. They're both, he's completing 59% of his passes for 7.2 yards per attempt and has been intercepted on just 1.6% of passes. The big issue for both of the Tennessee quarterbacks this season has been sacks. Their 11.11% sack rate is third highest in the NFL behind the two New York teams. Slightly lower with Levis, but not by much. And uh, as a result, that drops him down to 21st in the EPA plus CPOE composite on rbsdm.com. Still pretty solid for a rookie, especially if you compare this to Bryce Young as the number one pick in Carolina. <clears throat> so not quite C.J. Stroud-level performance, but... Uh, you know, where the Titans were able to get Will Levis in the draft, I think they have to be feeling pretty good about his performance as a rookie. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins has nearly twice as many targets as any other Titans player, and way more than twice as many as number two receiver Nick Westbrook Ikine. <laughs> this team traded A.J. Brown. They did. It, it didn't work out well. I wonder they're, if they're aware of that. They are. Then they fired their GM <laughs> <laughs> last year. Uh, he's catching just 51% of those targets, but for a solid 7.9 yards per target. Ted N. Chigosium Okonkwo, number two on targets, catching 68%, but uh, for just 9.2 yards per reception. Uh, he helped out my fantasy team, a crucial victory. 
in the Monday night game two weeks ago as they came from behind to beat Miami improbably in that one. But uh, a crucial victory for me. Yes, is it being in the Champions Assured League. you a spot in the Champions League with both of my teams making the playoffs. My favorite words, by default. Yep. Yep. Uh, Tennessee still leans heavily on Derrick Henry, though not as much so as in past years. His 230 carries ranked third in the league. He was tops in three of the previous four seasons. Uh, perhaps related, he's averaging a career low <laughs> yeah. 3.8 yards per carry. They're pretty average in terms of rush EPA per play, 23rd in success rate, but that will be the big focus for the Seahawks this week, especially their difficulty bringing down bigger running backs like Derrick Henry. Uh, Devin Witherspoon will be very useful in that regard, assuming he's back this week. Tennessee defense ranks 20th in DVOA, but just 28th in EPA per play, so they've played a difficult schedule. Their run defense is above average, but they're 30th against the pass in terms of EPA per play. The 7.5 yards per attempt they've allowed are 8th highest and have intercepted a league low four passes, also last in passes defensed. The one thing this Tennessee team does defensively is they do get after quarterbacks. Their 8% sack rate is in the top 10 in the NFL. Danico Autry leads the team with a career-high 11 sacks. Harold Landry, uh, who's been their top pass rusher, has 8.5. Also keep an eye on pass rush specialist Arden Key, who's in the top 10 in pass rush win rate, and has 2.5 sacks in the last four games. Yeah, and I was actually thinking about, I was watching uh, the Texans game this last weekend against the Titans, and just seeing Case Keenum, who had a fine game or whatever, and Devin Singletary gain 121 yards rushing against them. I was thinking about this Seahawks offense, which I think you have to admit is probably pretty good. I think they rank 12th in DVOA right now. And that's with Drew Locke the last couple of weeks. They still were moving the ball. For, they out they out yards per played the Eagles with Drew Locke at quarterback. Yeah. And Jalen Hurts, hel- not healthy. Jalen Hurts might have been sick on the other side. Drew, we did not talk about that as part of the context. There, there was nothing that he did that was like, oh, he's sick, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, he I'm he not moved sure around would... fine, maybe, but like decision-making accuracy, I'm a little skeptical. I think he was probably fine. Uh, but this offense against that Tennessee defense that Case Keenum and Devin Singletary were able to move the ball against pretty consistently made me think, I think if Geno is back healthy... You have the Ken Walker, like the Seahawks are just, I'm going to knock on wood, pretty healthy on offense. Yeah. They've got the tackles back. Yeah. Ken Walker looks good. Charbonnet, if Gino is back, I said they're pretty healthy on offense when they literally started Drew Lock today. <laughs> but beyond that, the receiving core with JSN now being a bigger part of it. Again, I'm knocking on wood vigorously, but like it's a pretty healthy offense and seeing them against that Tennessee defense that really wasn't able to do much against Houston was I, I think I think the Seahawks are going to score points in this game, and I think it's going to be really hard for Tennessee to keep up. Tennessee also played last week without Jeff Simmons, their veteran defensive tackle, who's a big part of their interior pass rush. So that's, did you see that's, what Derrick Henry went for against the Texans? Oh, I did. I have I have Derrick Henry in, in one of my leagues. So. Oh, did you like that point nine you gained? <laughs> he did have he had four receptions for a yard. Oh my god. Like, this has to be up there with one of the... Do they still do quick reads? Uh, yeah, I think so. I didn't Was this up there that. with the worst performance of the week? He had 16 carries for nine yards. He had almost as double as many carries as yards as he had. 
Yeah, no, it was. I, and I he saw some stat about it on four Twitter passes about for a yard. And Levis finished this game, but is now dealing with a high ankle sprain. So it's unclear what his is. Is it Ryan Tannehill who they would go back to? You didn't mention Traylon Burks at all as a receiver. <clears throat> Traylon Burks didn't do a lot this season to merit getting mentioned. He is a distant, he's a third at best on their team in targets among wide receivers. So, yikes. Yeah, I mean, there was some promise showing the back half of last season, but I don't think it is necessarily true. And then he's missed some time. He's only played eight games. So that's a factor in it as well. I mean, yeah, would they start Malik Willis if, if Levis can't go or Ryan Tannehill? I mean, Tannehill does seem like the right type of quarterback to beat the Seahawks defense. Oh, I'm, I'm way more nervous about this game. Like, we can do percentage chances, Will Levis versus anybody else. Yeah. I, I think, obviously, it goes, Tannehill is the one that I'm most afraid of, then Levis, then Malik Willis is pretty distant. But I mean, if Tannehill plays, I think it's like a toss-up game at best. I totally agree. Well, mm, I still think this defense is pretty bad. It's not good. And the motivation also may be a little questionable after they've been eliminated for the playoffs. So Julian Brooks did have three catches for 62 yards on Sunday. But just just seeing the, the defense and where they rank and the Seahawks offense. And I mean, we saw them against the Cowboys who have at various times been a good defense and they moved the ball pretty consistently. And they even moved the ball against the Niners whose defense looks a little, little questionable. Uh, but these last couple of weeks, the Seahawks offense has been far ahead of its defense. And... I just don't see how the Titans are going to slow that down. Like, they've been moving pretty consistently. As long as the Seahawks make right decisions, they don't do a bunch of kicking field goals. That would be the thing that would make me nervous, is they keep getting into the red zone, and then they kick field goals, and they don't put the game away, and all of a sudden Tannehill has a drive, and then they win. Like, they need to score touchdowns. They need to go for the occasional fourth down, stuff like that. But if they are if they are moving, even even at an average level of aggressiveness, and touchdown scoring. I still think they beat the Titans in this game. All right, so a couple last-minute updates from Pete Carroll's availability uh, as we were recording this pod. Uh, said that Michael Jackson started over Reek Woolen because they had a competition in practice, and quote, that's how it came out. There we go. Like Sean quoted him as saying, and then that Devin Witherspoon has a legit issue with his hip, he reiterated. It's really deep and really painful. I can't imagine that he won't be able to make it back. That's me wishful thinking. Oh, we need him back fuck. out there. So... That's probably all we've seen of Devin Witherspoon this season. <laughs> Devin Witherspoon's leg will be amputated. <laughs> uh, uh, Pete did say Geno Smith expected to play against the Titans. Okay. So, percentage chances of victory? Are we going to do this based on quarterbacks? No, I don't, it's not that big of a deal. Okay. I think it's like 65%. I think it's like 60%. Seahawks, two and a half point favorites on the road here. So... This is definitely the sweet spot where the Seahawks could ruin Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah. No, definitely definitely a chance. The 10 a.m. start time, too. Christmas Eve, 10 a.m. And a CBS game, even though they are the road game. That's no longer the kind of that strict a rule anymore. This would seem eerily familiar to us from last year. If the team they were playing last year didn't eventually win the Super Bowl and have the MVP on their roster. And the Seahawks played kind of good in that game. Yeah. So... They acquitted themselves decently. There were there's just so many situations over the last few years where we've been like, eh, you know, the, all things considered, the defense didn't play that bad in that one. Th- that is not what happened today, though. This is not an all things considered. They had two picks. You're giving me that's an all things considered they didn't play that bad? 
Philly's offense was still very efficient in terms of EPA on a per-play basis. Haven't they been all year? Not really. They've been good. They haven't been great. But th- that's what this defense is designed to do. Take I mean, you this was, one yard. I agree that this is what the defense is designed to do. A lot of the times it doesn't work as designed. But Jalen Hurts was 17 of 31. Like, they're quarterbacks who have shredded this defense. We are talking not even... Literally, we have seen them against Brock Purdy. Just unstoppable. Yeah, that's the MVP favorite. I don't know if he's actually the MVP favorite, but he should be. So. I'm try, trying to think back. Uh, I mean... He is, the, he is the MVP favorite. He's minus 215 at ESPN. Now. I don't know if Stafford shredded them in that game. They actually played pretty good defense in that one. No, the Rams game was one of the... Considered not that bad. Four point five yards per play. Stafford was seventeen of thirty-one for a, the Gino got hurt. They lost the game because Gino got hurt, and it should have been a roughing the passer penalty. That's what happened. Well, and again, Ken Walker was out. Like the, when you're a mediocre team, this is these are the sort of thin margins. That but that's your that's not. Hangs on. They played very badly. Some there. This it's not like it's the again, worst defense in the NFL. This is it's not. No, they were probably the twentieth best defense in the NFL. Or something. I think they'll get the 23rd best defense. We'll see what... I don't know if DVOA is updated. They're at 24 right now. I still think this was a good performance against the Eagles. They picked up Jalen Hurts twice. They held them to not that many yards per play. Like, they shut down those receivers. You should be impressed. Just be impressed with the Seahawks when they do a good thing. Seahawks fans talking themselves into the defense since 2018. Just... I'm, I'm just saying, when they do a good thing, be impressed... When they don't, don't. They, but give them credit today. They won the game. Today, of all days, give them credit. <laughs> On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks. And will we be back later this week? We will be back later this week. Okay, talking so we're not about even going to wish you a happy holidays then. Okay. Well, we can wish you a happy holidays anyways. I mean, the holidays are an extended period of time. Well, and if we don't catch up until then... Uh, have have a great holidays. Have a great Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And hopefully the Seahawks don't ruin it. Thanks for listening. Thanks.